Thank you. Well, it's very nice to be here. It's great to see such a large crowd on a nice sunny Sunday. Um, I have always been impressed by the Peninsula Sangha, and I must say that I'm even more impressed today. This is the first time I've ever given a Dharma talk where the tape recorder had a flat screen monitor attached to it. (laughs) So today I want to start off by asking you a question. What were the Buddha's last words? I mean, we had this great being who's passing away, and what were his last words? Strive on with diligence. All things, yeah, all things, all conditioned things are impermanent. Strive on and practice with diligence. Okay, all conditioned things are impermanent. Strive on, practice with diligence. Any other? Be an island unto yourself. Okay. Be a lamp unto yourself, sometimes is the way it's translated. Any, any other takers? Nothing's worth holding on to. Okay, well, he said, be an island unto yourself ten months before he died and three months before he died. And his final words were, all conditioned things are subject to decay. Seek liberation diligently. Translated loosely. So another question for you. The Buddha's first sermon was the setting in motion of the wheel of Dharma the Discourse on the Four Noble Truths. And at the end of that discourse, one of the five ascetics that he gave the discourse to got it. He knew. His name was Kandanya. And in Pali, uh, knowing and Kandanya are very similar, and he became known as Kandanya Who Knows, or Anya, Anya Kandanya. What was it he knew? All conditioned things fast. Very close. Whatever rises also ceases. Basically the same thing. The Buddha's teaching began with impermanence. And it ended with impermanence. Anicca. Now when we hear the three characteristics of all phenomena are anicca, dukkha, anatta. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, corelessness. The first one, anicca, impermanence, okay, yeah, got that. Everything changes. Well, what about these other two? And we move on very quickly to examining, you know, the unsatisfactory nature of everything, which intuitively doesn't seem right. I mean, you know, that chocolate ice cream last night was very satisfying. And, you know, Corliss, what what on earth are you talking about? The thing is, anicca is a very profound teaching and dismissing it with, yeah, everything changes, actually doesn't see the depths of what's going on and we need to pay attention to that. If we look carefully at the fact that everything changes, we see that the unsatisfactory nature of things is due to the fact that everything changes. 
we also see that the coreless nature, the empty nature of things, is also due to the fact that everything changes. If things didn't change and we were to find something that was satisfactory, you know, we could just hang on to it and we'd have lasting satisfaction. But everything is changing. I mean, even the chocolate ice cream last night eventually changed. It disappeared out of the bowl. If, it had, if the bowl had continually refreshed itself so that no matter what spoonful I ate, there was just as much more there and I could eat and eat and eat, eventually it would have gone from being very satisfying to very unsatisfying. Things change and it's their changeable nature that tends to bring the dukkha. It's not exactly the changing nature itself. The Buddha pointed out that the dukkha arises because of craving. The Pali word is tanha, which means literally thirst. We want something really badly. And if we get it, that's fantastic. Except we can't keep it because it's going to change. So the craving brings temporary satisfaction, but it doesn't bring lasting satisfaction because whatever we crave, either we don't get it, and that's unsatisfying, or we get it, but we can't keep it because it changes. So the unsatisfactory nature of things is actually grounded in the fact that things are impermanent. The coreless nature or the empty nature of things is a bit more difficult to see, but it too is based on the fact that things are impermanent. This is a clock, right? Obviously. It's not always been a clock. It used to be uh, sand and dead dinosaurs, right? Okay, but they sort of manufactured it into a clock and now it's a clock. And eventually, it'll stop being a clock and it'll be landfill. And then I guess a thousand years from now, somebody will dig it up and go, oh, look, an artifact from that ancient civilization. But for right now, it's a clock. But it doesn't have any inherent existence. It will change. It wasn't a clock always, and it's going to cease being a clock. Temporarily, it's a clock, and it's very useful as a clock because it will prevent me from going on and on and on and on. And, <laughs> right? At some point, I'll stop, and you can go and have lunch. But it's just due to causes and conditions that right now it's a clock. Somebody harvested the sand and the dead dinosaurs and made it into plastic and silicon, formed it into this shape. Somebody wrote the program that makes it tell time. And it arose. It is dependently arisen. And since all things that arise also cease, eventually it will cease working and it'll be thrown away and it will no longer be a clock. It'll just be trash. If we look at everything, including ourselves, they're dependently arisen. We are dependently arisen. The second sermon that the Buddha gave was a teaching on not-self. 
that's when Candania and the other of the five ascetics, the other four, got totally enlightened. They really got the whole ball of wax. I mean, just understanding all that arises also ceases is pretty profound, but there's more to it than that. But that's a good starting point. What he taught in the second sermon was that wherever you look, that's not self. Now, one of the important things to understand about anatta, about not-self, is just what exactly is this self that's being talked about? I mean, if I stub my toe, I'm going to be the one jumping around and hopping up and down and feeling pain, not you. Well, you might feel some sympathy, but you know, you're not going to actually experience the physical pain. It was me. Who's to say there's not a self? But if you look at the second sermon that the Buddha taught, what he was saying is there's no permanently happy self. There's no essence in here that we have that is going to be permanently happy. Everywhere you look, can't find it. Now, in a sense, the not-self could be translated as not-soul, as soul is used in the Christian tradition. Um, But when we say somebody doesn't have soul in this culture, it means other things. So we'll stick with not-self because that's what's well-known. But basically it's saying there's no enduring permanent nature. This is because we, like everything else, are dependently arisen. We arise because of causes and conditions. I'm not speaking just about the gleam in your father's eye. I mean, there's causes and conditions before that, and there's causes and conditions based on the food that your mother ate, the food that you eat. Who we are today depends on the culture in which we are raised, the language that we speak, the education that we have, the friends that we have, the job that we have. All of these things come together to make who we are. It's not as though there is some core essence there. And all these things that come together tend to make us somewhat changeable. The the traditional thing is to tell you to go back to your photograph albums and open, you know, the early pages and take a look at that cute little baby on the bearskin rug and that's you. Right? But you don't look anything like that anymore. Maybe an improvement, maybe not. Right? But you changed. You physically changed. And you certainly changed in your mental makeup. If you think back to your absolute finest moments in high school, uh, you're not anything like that anymore. If you think to your worst moments in high school, you're not like that anymore. Or in college or in, you know, take any point in time and things have changed. We are influenced by so many different things, some of which affect us physically and we change rather slowly, but many things affect us mentally and we tend to change fairly rapidly, especially in this culture. So what the Buddha is saying is that this change that underlies everything is the basis for the three characteristics. That we get into trouble because we're craving things that change and either we don't get them, that's dukkha, or we do get them and they change and that's dukkha. And that things are empty because they're simply the result of conditions coming together 
and eventually going to fall apart. The Buddha spoke about impermanence a number of times in the suttas. The, the suttas are full of talks on impermanence. I have a friend who went through the suttas and gathered together what he considered the essence of the Buddha's teaching, and he made this little booklet. It's called Buddha Essence. It's by Daryl Bailey, who was a monk with uh, Ajahn Sumedho at Amravati in England for a number of years. And he read the suttas, and basically he took a bunch of stuff out of context and put it all down with a little wrapper around it and made this nice little book. He did a pretty good job, even though the things are taken out of context. Occasionally I go, Daryl, that's not what that meant. But mostly it's very good. And so I want to share with you what one person's take on the essence of the Buddha's teaching is. There will come a time when even the great mountains and the earth itself will be gone. All things are impermanent, unstable, and insecure. Although it is of great benefit to feed Buddhas, to feed the monastic community, to build monasteries, to follow the moral precepts, and to practice loving-kindness, it is of more benefit to maintain the perception of impermanence. It is better to live a single day perceiving how things rise and fall than to live a century not perceiving this. Everything is changing. Not even as much as a pinch of dust is unchanging. Physical forms, feelings, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness, all of these arise, pass away, and while they are present, they change. They are insubstantial without essence. Physical form is like a lump of froth. Feelings like a water bubble. Perception is a mirage. Mental activities are like the empty plantain trunk. And consciousness, a conjuring trick. Everything is changing. For example, if there is smoke we see that it's changing. We don't think of it as a solid form. If the smoke changes and suddenly it takes the appearance of the face of Abraham Lincoln, we go, oh, look, the smoke looks like Abraham Lincoln. But we don't go, oh, that's Abraham Lincoln. And if the smoke no longer looks like Abraham Lincoln two seconds later, we don't get all upset that Abraham Lincoln died. It's just you know smoke changing and doing its thing. The universe... It's just like the smoke. It appears to take on forms, but it's changing. It's always changing. What we do is we concoct forms out of these ever, this ever-changing flow. The actual word that the Buddha used when he said all compounded things are subject to decay, in the Pali word is sankara. Sankara is translated as conditioned things or compounded things. Sometimes it's translated as mental activities. Sometimes it's translated as um, karmic activities. The best translation I have yet heard is from Ajahn Santikaro, and he translated as concoctions. All right. All concoctions are subject to decay whether they be physical concoctions or mental concoctions, whether they be the image of Abraham Lincoln in smoke or 
me. They're just like the smoke. They're moving, changing all the time. Now, the smoke changes rapidly enough that we don't get fooled. The mountains change very slowly. And we think, more or less, they're permanent. Occasionally we get an earthquake and get the wake-up call. But usually, we're thinking they're a solid, substantial thing. And me, well, since I'm the supreme ruler of the universe, I must be at least permanent. But we're all changing. It's all moving all the time. We need to have this perception of impermanence. Life is like a flowing river, never pausing for a moment, an instant, or a second. There is an unformed happening. It is ignorance of the unformed that gives rise to a belief in formations. To believe that there is permanence, formation, in the impermanent, flowing, is a distortion of perception, thought, and view. You can't step in the same river twice. You know, this is an old Zen saying, or maybe it's even older than that. Well, the river is not just the liquid water river, but all of life. It's all flowing. It's all changing. It's never the same. That was one of the disappointing things about growing up. I thought I would get it all figured out, and then, you know, it would just work. But it kept changing. A young infant does not have ideas of self, things, rites and rituals, sensual pleasures, or beings. A young infant does not have ideas of body, speech, or intention. Yet the underlying tendency to develop self-view, rites and rituals, sensual desires, and ill will lies within him. When he grows and his faculties mature, he plays at games. When he grows and his faculties mature further, the youth habitually enjoys himself with the sensual pleasures of formations, sight, sounds, smells, taste, and touches. On seeing a physical form, he wants it if it is pleasing and dislikes it if it is displeasing. Absorbed in liking and disliking, he clings to any feeling he feels. On hearing a sound, smelling an odor, tasting a flavor, touching a texture, noticing a mental object, there is clinging. So what we're doing is that we are taking these ever-flowing things and concretizing them into clock. And then, even worse, we're taking these non-substantial things and making it my clock. Right? We cling to them. They're ours. They're you know, possessions. They're going to bring us happiness. But it's like grabbing onto the picture of Abraham Lincoln in the smoke and you want to take it home and put it in a frame and put it over your mantle. It doesn't work. You just can't do that. It's the same with everything else. The things that bring us sensual pleasures, we want to take them home with us. The things that don't bring us pleasure, we want to get rid of. Patience. They'll get rid of themselves, okay? But this is where we get trapped. These, this taking of these flowing, this, this flowing, unfolding nature of the universe and plucking out of it some aspect and saying solid and then saying mine. This is our problem. 
Birth is origin, descent into the womb, delivery, the appearance of the five group of formations, the aggregates, and the functioning of the sense faculties around these aggregates. One is called a being when firmly entangled in desiring these five groups, physical forms, feelings, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness. This is what we do. Thoughts, ideas, physical objects, we concretize them and then we want them. The five focuses of clinging, the five aggregates, create dukkha. When one has desire for physical forms, feelings, perceptions, mental activities, consciousness, then when they change, sorrow, pain, and despair arise. This is the cause of dukkha. This desire, this craving arises when things appear to be enjoyable and ultimately fulfilling. Now, there are four kinds of clinging. Clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to views, clinging to self-theories, and clinging to rites and rituals. Clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to either the pleasure of the moment or the things that we think will bring us the pleasure. And it's true, they may temporarily bring us the pleasures, but because of impermanence, it's going to be temporary. Nothing, not even that chocolate ice cream from last night, is going to bring ultimate satisfaction. Clinging to views. We want an explanation of what's going on. It's confusing out there. And so in an attempt to deal with this ever-changing universe, we get some rules to work with. The problem is these are just sort of handy shortcuts to begin our thinking of how to deal with the universe. They're not a true explanation of the universe. All the viewpoints, all the views are ultimately incorrect. The opening lines of the Tao Te Ching, the basis of Taoism, are the truth that can be told is not the ultimate truth. Okay? Whatever view you have is inadequate. It may be right, it may be useful, but it doesn't explain everything. We actually have to engage in critical thinking. We can use our views to sort of orient ourselves, but we shouldn't cling to the views. We should have an open mind. Some of the earliest suttas that were written down, the Buddha's teachings were an oral tradition for 500 years, everybody knows this, okay, and then they begin to write them down. And the scholars agree that the Sutta Nipata, which is a collection of a lot of suttas, is uh, some of the stuff that was written down earliest and least subject to, shall we say, the game of telephone, you know, where things in an oral tradition keep evolving and changing. So the Sutta Nipata preserves the teachings closer to probably what the Buddha said than some of the later stuff that was written down. And the overriding theme of the Sutta Nipata is not holding two fixed views. If you want spiritual growth, you've got to have an open mind. And in the end, you have to let go of everything. So clinging to views is not a useful thing. Clinging to self-theories. The thing that we most want to figure out is me. Me and my role in the universe. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? 
what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life for me? Okay, this is, this is why we get the views. The views are so that I can deal with it. Right, so we, we cling to these ideas of who we are. I'm a computer programmer. I'm a Dharma teacher. You know, I'm an ex-hippie. I'm a Californian. Right? I'm an ex-Mississippian. Right? These are just labels. They're not who I am. Right? And any label that I put or you put is not going to be correct. At the moment, I'm the guy who's saying this. But that's hardly profound. It shouldn't cling to that, get all wrapped up with it. And cling to rites and rituals. Now, literally, this means clinging to the fact that some spiritual rite or ritual will bring you spiritual enlightenment. If you light enough candles, if you do enough prostrations, you'll become enlightened. It doesn't say you can't engage in rites and rituals, but you shouldn't cling to them. You shouldn't believe that this is going to bring your ultimate satisfaction. But on a deeper level, the clinging to rites and rituals is clinging to habitual habits. I've always voted Republican. It worked in the past, right? Okay, how about engaging in a little critical thinking? Or similarly, I've always voted Democrat. It worked in the past. Anything that we do habitually, we start doing it and not seeing if it's still appropriate to do. We have to look. It may be that it's still appropriate, but we need to engage in critical thinking. We need to not fixate on any of these because it's an ever-flowing stream out there. Things keep changing. Ignorance of the flowing quality of life gives rise to a tendency to fixate on formation and this gives a rise to sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. A wise disciple sees this and is no longer fascinated by physical forms, feelings, perception, mental activities, and consciousness. If we can see the depths of the impermanence, we're much less likely to become fascinated by the things because they are impermanent. We won't be hooked as likely. Life is like a flowing mountain river, never pausing for a moment or an instant or a second. Perceiving impermanence in all formations, then all formations will be seen as insubstantial, not lasting. Perceiving impermanence, the mind does not reach for gain, for absolute control. Knowing that physical forms, feelings, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness are insubstantial, fading away, and ultimately satisfying, the attraction to these is given up. With no attachment to physical forms, feelings, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness, then when they change, no sorrow, pain, grief, and despair arises. This is our strategy. Perceiving no lasting formation, no mentality or materiality, the mind is rid of the conceits of I and mine, this body and consciousness. The mind with understanding is set free from the stain of sensuality, ideas of endless pleasure, the stain of being, ideas of self and world, the stain of views, interpretations of self and world, and the stain of ignorance, ideas of permanence. 
Supreme emptiness, liberation, is the presence of the six sensory fields, the happening of the moment. Be here now, somebody said that. Without the stain of sensual desire, the stain of being, the stain of ignorance. We're just experiencing what's happening. That which is absent, desire, self, world, and permanence, is absent. That which is present, the happening of the moment, is present. Whoever in the past reached and remained in pure emptiness, freedom, it was this that they reached. By not clinging to views, by seeing life clearly, and by being freed from all sense desires, one is not born again into delusion and clinging. It's our clinging to these insubstantial objects that get us into trouble. The objects themselves are a mistaken view. There's a paper by Christine Scarda, who is a neuroscientist, who described perception from a non-traditional neuroscience viewpoint. Basically, what she said is that through our senses, we take in the world holistically. And then internally, we chop it up into individual objects. But the eye, if you look around you, is taking in and seeing just the whole thing. The eye isn't breaking it up into people and cushions and clocks and walls. We do that internally. That perception is happening inside. The holistic information comes in, but because we don't have the ability to deal with it holistically, we chop it up into pieces. And we make it into people and cars and birds and airplanes and chocolate ice cream. And we also deal with it in terms of happiness and sadness and depression and joy and all the other mental things that go on. My brilliant idea, your stupid idea, whatever. Okay, We make things out of the holistic world. We make things out of this unfolding. In the Navajo language, they don't really have nouns. They have uh, verbs for pretty much everything. So instead of describing me as giving a Dharma talk, talking, Dharma talking is happening. In our language, we have nouns everywhere. But we should look at things as processes, as flowing, as changing. If you look at yourself as a verb rather than a noun, you get a much better sense of what is meant by anatta. If you start looking deeply, you start realizing there are no such things as nouns. It's all verbs, just some of them are moving kind of slow. The problem is that we cling on to these verbs and we want it to be mine and we want it to bring us happiness. It's that clinging that gets us into trouble. 
So what are you clinging to? I had this brought home to me fairly, well, fairly interestingly this summer. I was sitting on the couch reading a book. Saturday afternoon, knock on the door. I go to the door, I open the door. There's two guys standing there. Black suits, black hats, big guy, little guy. Yeah, I know, I'm describing the Blues Brothers. These were not the Blues Brothers. Okay, one of them whips out a badge, flips it at me and says, FBE, we've come for the socks. (laughs) What? FBE, we've come for the socks. What the heck is the FBE? Federal Bureau of Enlightenment. What? What are you talking about? The big one is doing all the talking. The little one suddenly butts in. Didn't you sign up for enlightenment? And he pulls out this clipboard and flips through it and says, This your name? Yeah. Arahant. Whoa. Ambitious, aren't we? What's going on? Look, the Buddha said that this clinging is going to get you in trouble. Craving causes dukkha. We happen to know that in the upper right-hand drawer of your wardrobe chest... Where you keep your socks, in the back there are five socks with holes in them that you've been saying for years you're going to fix. We've come to collect these socks. Are you clinging to them or are you willing to give them up? Well, I live pretty close to Berkeley living in Alameda, but this was a little bizarre. Okay, so I closed, I said, wait a second. I closed the door, I locked it. I ran upstairs, I opened the drawer. In the back were five socks with holes in them that I said I'd been you know, planning to work fixed for a number of years. I go downstairs, I open the door, I say, is this what you want? They say, yes, thank you. And they leave. I go, this is really bizarre. (laughs) The next day, Sunday afternoon, I'm sitting on the couch reading a book, same book. There's a knock at the door. I look through the peephole this time. (laughs) Same two guys. Well, okay, I open the door. FBE, we've come for the celery. <laughs> the celery? In the bottom of your refrigerator, in the right hand, left-hand crisper drawer, you have three stalks of celery you bought a month ago. <laughs> Are you willing to give them up? Uh, yes, you can have it. Hang on, hang on. I lock the door again. I go, sure enough, how do they know about this? Three stalks of very wilted celery. I take it to them, I give it to them, they seem happy, they leave. Next day was Monday, I wasn't home, it was good, right? <laughs> I pretty much had forgotten about it the next Saturday until there's a knock at the door. Well, if all they want is wilted celery and holy socks, I guess I can answer the door. Yep, it's them. I open the door. FBE, we've come for the couch. The couch? Wait a second. The the, the couch is where I sit to read. Uh, No, you can't have the couch. Look, you signed up for our hardship. You're going to let a stupid couch prevent you from getting enlightened? Besides, you got that nice chair over there. You know, I thought about it. I wrestled with myself. You know, how attached am I to the couch? I mean, you know, the Buddha said this is what gets us into trouble. You know, our clingings, our cravings. Would I be willing to let go of this couch? I mean, I did pay a lot of money for it and it's nice, but... Well, reluctantly, I said they could take the couch. 
I did not help them get the couch out. (laughs) There's a trick to getting the couch through the front door, and I didn't show them the trick. But they figured it out, and they took the couch away. Last I saw my couch, it's heading down the driveway. and Okay. Sunday. I'm sitting in a chair. (laughs) Reading a book. Different book this time. Knock at the door. Look through the peephole. It's them. I don't want to open the door. They knock again. Finally, I open the door. Yeah, what? FBE, we've come for your hot tub. Wow. Uh, the guy has this clipboard. I snatch it out of his hand. I say, what are you else are you coming for? There it is. Hot tub, water bed, Prius, girlfriend. Girlfriend, get out of here. I shoved the clipboard back in the guy's hand, pushing him into the other door, slammed and locked the door. You know, I leaned with my back against it. This is crazy. And then I think about it. I think about it. I've made a really bad mistake. I open the door. They're only at the end of the driveway. I shout, hey, wait, wait, wait. Can I have my couch back? (laughs) So what are you clinging to? (laughs) What formation, which is impermanent, which is no more substantial than a puff of smoke, have you got yourself so wrapped around that it's completely changing your life, that it's driving the directions in which you go. There's a uh, sutra in the Mahayana tradition called the Diamond Cutter Sutra. Highly recommended. It's a book by Musang, which has a great commentary on it. And the basis of the sutra is to, you know, it's a nice long story that leads up to this, you know, the money scene, this poem towards the end of it that goes, Thus you should view this fleeting world, a bubble in the stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud. A flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. All concocted things are impermanent. Work diligently for your liberation. So we've got about three minutes, and instead of taking questions, I think I'm going to do a very brief guided metta meditation. So to begin, please put your attention on your breath. about somebody that you find easy to love. Doesn't matter who it is. Uh, A child, your significant other, someone you admire, 
dear friend. Get a sense of this person and get a sense of what it feels like to love them. Now take this feeling of love and give it to yourself. The Buddha said nobody deserves love any more than you. Take this feeling of love and share it with the people sitting around you. And then let it grow so that it reaches out to everyone in the room. Let this feeling of love keep growing so that it touches everybody in this neighborhood. and everyone on the peninsula. Open your heart wider and let your love flow out till it touches everybody in the Bay Area. Give this same feeling of love to the amazing variety of people that we live with. Rich people, poor people, Homeless people, people in prisons and hospitals, people that are very happy. They all need and deserve love. Let this feeling of love flow out so it touches everyone on the West Coast and then everyone on the continent. Let the same feeling of love that you have for someone who's easy to love reach out to everybody on the planet. Human, animals, birds, fish, insects. Without exception, whatever beings they are may be, may they be filled with love. Now put your attention back on yourself and realize that you have the capacity to generate a whole world full of love anytime you want. May all beings everywhere be happy. So, thank you very much.